Welcome to the New Hampshire Journal Podcast. I am your host, Michael Graham, Managing Editor at nhjournal.com, where I just want to say right now, please note that in my conversation with Morgan Ortega's former State Department spokesperson, head of Polaris National Security, I offered to restart it. I offered to pull a Joyce Craig and restart the interview. She said no. So what's what you're about to hear, it's not on me. By the way, if you have not seen the Joyce Craig WMUR interview, Adam Sexton, great job. I, I know that things look dire for Republicans in New Hampshire. Fact is, if Donald Trump is the nominee, top of the ticket, there's a legitimate argument to be made that the rest of the GOP should just fold up shop, bury your money under a rock, wait for 2026. But I will also add to that, Joyce Craig is an untested candidate. And if you have not seen that interview where she tries to make Adam Sexton restart the interview twice, he's like, what are you talking about? This is live to tape. What do you, what do you mean? We don't restart. It's just great. Uh, and so, and thumbs up, by the way, to WMUR for just running it. That was an excellent way to go. Uh, less great is the media coverage, and this includes the Boston Globe, uh, Concord Monitor and Union Leader, running a story on this new report from the New Hampshire Fiscal Policy Institute saying that business tax cuts have been bad, that they've cost New Hampshire up to $700 plus million in revenue. And nowhere in the coverage do they mention that New Hampshire uh, Fiscal Policy Institute is a left-wing, left-of-center, whatever you call it, group. It's run by a Democratic operative. It's uh, uh, funded by uh, national progressive organizations, and they, it says right on their website that we're, uh, you know, we, we're advancing the cause of equity, which in the current parlance is, you know, the left conversation, as opposed to merit, which is the right conversation, the, the, the politically right, not. <laughs> I, I, oh, brother, should I restart this one too? You see, you know what I'm saying. People on the center right talk about merit. People on the center left talk about equity. So they say right in their statement, we're an equity group. And they say they collaborate with big progressive organizations like the state's priorities project. So they're, they're not hiding the fact that they're lefties. Fascinatingly, in none of the media coverage does anyone say the standard, you know, progressive think tank, New Hampshire Fiscal Policy Institute, left of center, nothing. In fact, the best part, magnificent, was the piece in an unnamed media outlet that rhymes with union leader, where they, they do the whole story, never mention the partisan politics of the Fiscal Policy Institute. Then when they quote Drew Klein from the Josiah Bartlett Institute, they call it the conservative free market, free which is what's fine. That's I, I want to know where they come from. That doesn't, that doesn't um, make the reporting, the math, the, the, the analysis, you know, good or bad. I just, as a consumer of content, I'd like to know, like New Hampshire Journal, we do not hide the fact that we are center right political, that, you know, that's our, that's our editorial view. We report news, we report journalism. Some people say, well, I don't know about that. And I always say we, uh, we, uh, have dedicated ourselves to upholding the same level of objectivity and commitment to journalistic principles as New Hampshire Public Radio and the New York Times. And we've never failed. And by the way, as soon as we say that, everyone, the conversation ends. So my point is, how do you report this? And you call out, you know, Josiah Bartlett, the conservative center, you know, uh, free market. And you never mention the politics. And the answer is uh, that the premise of the media in New Hampshire is left is normal, right is weird. And that's the premise by the journalism around the country. And uh, so as a consumer, I just want to know, by the way, that Fiscal Policy Institute report is, in my opinion, based on the math, garbage. And all you need to know is they say these business tax cuts these Republicans are throwing around are meaningless. They have no impact. They're so small. They're nothing. And they cost you $800 million. Okay. Well, I'm sorry. Which one is it? Is it small and meaningless or is it $800 So... Uh, New Hampshire Journal is going to put together a uh, roundtable event on business tax cuts in New Hampshire because uh, Mayor Joyce Craig has already stumbled on the issue during her, that same interview with uh, Adam Sexton. She was unclear in her answer. Now she says, no, 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 I don't support raising business taxes. Uh, Cindy Warmington, 
says she doesn't support raising business taxes. So, you know, it's it's a little, you know, there's some wiggle room in there and you have to wonder if there is a big anti-Trump backlash and you end up with a governor, Craig or Warmington, and a legislature controlled by Democrats, are they really going to keep their hands off business taxes? Or did the Democrat-run New Hampshire Fiscal Policy Institute release this uh, proposal or, or this this report so that 18 months from now, People can wave it around and say, see, we need to raise business taxes. We're losing revenue. They could go to funding important things, blah, blah, blah. Coincidence? Something more? We don't know. That's why we're going to hold the panel and ask everybody on both sides of the issue to join us and talk about whether or not it's time for New Hampshire to raise business taxes. We look forward to that. And before we get to the interviews, a quick comment about our interview with Perry Johnson. You may have noticed that not everybody who says they're running for president gets covered at NH Journal. So we have, in addition to limited resources, it's just we don't want to waste your time with people you've never heard of. Uh, and we're trying to keep it, we're, you know, we got a pretty open spigot for people we cover, but they're, they're just, we can only go so far. Now, you could argue that, well, Michael, if you're only going to cover the people who seriously have a chance of being the nominee, you should only be covering Donald Trump. And based on the current state of the race, I can't really argue (laughs) with that. So like I said, we try to be generous, but there is a point. Well, this week, Perry Johnson is now within striking distance of getting on the debate stage uh, in the first Republican debate. I'm sorry, if you're on the debate stage, you're you're in the hunt, you're in the race. And no joke, he is, as of this recording, closer to being on the debate stage than former Vice President Mike Pence. Now, Thursday morning on the Jack Heath Radio Show, former Vice President Pence said that he was very close to making the debate stage, and he thinks that they'll get there. He hopes to have an announcement soon, but as of now, he's not there. <laughs> Perry Johnson is very close. So uh, my point is, these aren't judges we're making about whether these candidates are good or bad. They're judges about our, you know, how much time and resources we have. There are so many candidates. You know, who do we cover that will be worth your time as readers because we work for you? Perry Johnson made the cut now that he has a legit shot at being on the debate stage. And I will tell you, you're going to hear it in a second. He's an interesting guy, interesting uh, background. There's a little uh, Ross Perot-y kind of thing going on there that I uh, found fascinating. And you'll hear your com- our conversation with Perry Johnson right after we talk to Morgan Otegas at Polaris National Security about the impact of foreign policy on the first in the nation primary here at nhjournal.com. So when we're not talking to presidential candidates here on the New Hampshire Journal podcast, we are talking to the powers behind the throne, the smart people who make others look smarter. And that includes Megan Ortegas with Polaris National Security, former spokes flack for the State Department during the Trump administration. Morgan, welcome back to the New Hampshire Journal podcast. You know, my friend, you made a, a Freudian slip there at the beginning. You called me Megan Ortegas instead of Morgan, but you probably uh, no, don't let's start know over. this. Nope, start, start. No, let's no, start no. Over. I have an identical twin name, Megan. You do not. I do. That's why I, that's why I chuckled. Then why are you I here? Can... I'm supposed to be talking to Megan. <laughs> so my favorite thing about my favorite thing about Morgan Ortegas is that her last name is impossible to spell. That's the one thing I've learned since we've been carrying her content and inside sources and interviewing her. No one can spell Ortegas. I can spell Polaris though. Maybe <laughs> maybe I should start calling you Morgan Polaris. Is it that hard to spell Ortegas? It's very it's very the way you spell it absolutely. Uh by the well, way, was... uh, tell tell them very very quickly about what Polaris does because you guys have been hosting events around the state yes. with presidential candidates and you've got one this Saturday with former Vice President Mike Pence. What the heck does Polaris do? So I found a Polaris after the Trump administration um, because I wanted to, I really had a passion and desire to take foreign policy and national security issues and make them relevant to everyday Americans. You know, I thought there are many think tanks in Washington, D.C., too many of them probably, <laughs> uh, but they do great things. They do research white papers. But I thought, you know, nobody is communicating directly to the American people, to voters, so we occasionally do stuff in D.C., but we really try not to. I, I live in Nashville, Tennessee. We're doing our events with the presidential uh, hopefuls uh, in New Hampshire. And um, and the, really the point you know, of, of Polaris is to give uh, people a, a, a forum to talk about foreign policy, to talk about defense, to talk about national security, the border, you name it. 
and and to really ask people the hard questions uh as that you know how would you act if you were a senator or if you were president or or you know right. secretary of state whatever the position may be and so we go uh, around the country again very focused on new hampshire right now just absolutely love our partnership in the granite state and uh, so our first event on the what we call the America the Great uh, tour was um, uh, in New Hampshire in Portsmouth with Nikki Haley. Uh, and now we have another one on Saturday, uh, it, this coming Saturday, uh, August 5th at 1030 a.m. Doors open at 930 a.m. This one's going to be in Bedford, New Hampshire. So it'll be at the Bedford Event Center. Now, I got to tell you, Michael, you know, I am a Southern mama. And so when I asked anybody to come out on Saturday morning, I thought, mm. you know what, I got to provide some nourishment for people. I can't invite people out to an event without some coffee and donuts. So I partnered with Lighthouse Local Cafe, which mm. my, I'm, I don't know about you. I'm a donut person. I love donuts. And I am so excited to try these Lighthouse Donuts on Saturday. So we will have free coffee and okay. donuts. Doors open at 930 and the event starts at 10. So a couple, th- couple things. Anyone who can't remember the details, at, it's up on our calendar at nhjournal.com. We have an event calendar with everything that we can find out about. And so you'll find all the details right there. So it's absolutely great. Secondly, you know, I am a donut fiend, but of course, growing up in South Carolina, I grew up with the greatest ever mass produced donuts, Krispy Kreme donuts, and you cannot get Krispy Kreme donuts here, which just drives me absolutely crazy. But there are some great, great donut places around New England. It's just a different style. I mean, it's more cake. It's like finding biscuits. Any biscuit that uh, has as much flour as lard in it is made the wrong way. You want so much lard that the flour barely holds it together into shape. That's the right way to do biscuits. Well, I make the, I make the best biscuits because I bake mine in a cast iron skillet. Oh, that's a good, that's a good start. Absolutely. My grandmother, Graham made the best biscuits though. I have to uh, correct you on that, but I'm sure yours are absolutely (laughs) outstanding. Hey, there's a, a, there's a sassy biscuit company out in Dover. I will take you there. They do some fun Mm. things. They do a shrimp and grits uh, biscuit uh, presentation I had the other day. Fantastic. So let's, let's talk more important. Okay. Nothing's more important than Southern food. Let's talk second, most important things foreign (laughs) policy. And I'm hoping that you will ask vice president Mike Pence about this new move, both from the white house and in Congress to expedite military aid to Taiwan. Uh, Mm -hmm. The Biden white house uh, announced this week. In fact, I think just in the last 24 hours, that they uh, are going to ask Congress to fund arms for Taiwan in the same supplemental budget request as Ukraine to speed up more weaponry to that island nation. Local New Hampshire Democratic Congressman Chris Pappas is a co-sponsor of the uh, bill called the Peace Taiwan Peace Through Strength Act, which encourages mm-hmm. exactly that, expect expediting military sales to Taiwan and uh, authorizing to uh, the U.S.'s ability to arm Taiwan in the Taiwan Relations Act, making that more clear, and some other things, too. So I have two questions for you. One is, where is the U.S. on Taiwan, and where do sh- you think the presidential candidates should be? And then secondly, any concern about linking the Taiwan funding to Ukraine? Even though it's not the same money, they're just piggybacking an authorization. I just... Given the politics around Ukraine, I wonder yeah. about the smartitude of that. So you're the professional Mona Orlando. Take it. No, you're the <laughs> professional Megan Ortegas. <laughs> Megan Morgan. Hey, potato, potato. Exactly. Um, so uh, listen, let's let's start at the sort of the 50,000 foot level, you know, on Taiwan. And, and why should Americans care about this? Well, you know, first of all, um, we have had this policy uh, for decades now called strategic ambiguity. And that policy worked for a long time. And what does strategic ambiguity mean? It means that we technically, when Nixon opened to China, when he went there and, and opened up the relationship, uh, we decided to uh, accept the one China principle uh, as it relates to both Taiwan and Hong Kong. But um, while we stand by the communiques, that's this is official U.S. government policy for Republican and Democrat administrations. Wait, Morgan, you just roll that out. It's almost like you used to do this for a living. I know, right? So I'm going to make this less boring, I promise. I'll, I, <laughs> I, won't, I won't bore you with too many communiques. But the point is, strategy, uh, for decades, served our national interest as a policy. We never said, yes, we will invade Taiwan. No, we won't. We did provide them with military uh, aid and we've done things to strengthen Taiwan, but we have sort of left it, you know, we've left it ambiguous to the Chinese. I do think that we are at the point now where it might be time for a policy change. 
So you have Biden. He has said on numerous occasions that the United States uh, would fight uh, in the event that China tried a military takeover of Taiwan. Government policy, but he is the president of the United States. Ergo, if he says it, it is policy. Right. However, his team often walks it back when he says it. So either he's just randomly saying this and right. and you know doesn't know what he's saying, or maybe it's a strategy for him to say it and then to walk it back. Either way, I don't think the ambiguity. I don't think it serves our our interest uh, for Biden to say we will fight, but then for his aides to walk it back, you know, behind the scenes, uh, off the record or on background. Right. Uh, I, I think we need to ha- make it clear to the Chinese Communist Party where we stand and what we will do, because here's why. Autocrats, dictators, thugs, you know, Michael, they make decisions uh, based off what they think America is going to do. And there is no doubt in my mind, after the fall of Kabul to the Taliban, uh, which killed you know 13, we're coming up on the two-year anniversary of that, by the way, right. uh, which killed 13 of our best young uh, men and women in the armed forces, after that chaotic and disastrous withdrawal, uh, it, it was, you know, you look at Putin, and by the way, we did not give any military aid uh, to the Ukrainians. The Biden administration did not. It was their policy. They said, well, we don't want to provoke Putin, right. so we are going to not give them military aid unless Putin invades. Now, in the Trump administration, the State Department in which I served, uh, we did give lethal aid. We did give military aid to the Ukrainians. Um, and we were the first administration to uh, have done so. So uh, I, I actually think so. All, all of this leads to say, like, why does all of this matter? What is the big picture in all of this? The big picture is, I think, Putin and Xi Jinping and, and even the Ayatollah in Iran, they make decisions and calculations based off what they think the United States will do. Mm-hmm. Putin clearly thought that he could get away with invading Ukraine. Uh, he thought that, I think, not only because of the fall of Kabul, uh, two years ago under Biden and, and, and you know, this loss of confidence in the United States leadership. Also, right. these are the same people that were in charge in the second term of the Obama administration whenever Putin invaded Crimea and faced no consequences, you know, basically no consequences uh, for doing so. So when we look at Taiwan, it, we, we've got to say the strategic ambiguity uh, makes sense anymore. I, I don't think it does. I think we. So need what to should the policy be? Well, I, I think that that is, first of all, that's something I'm going to ask Mike Pence on Saturday <laughs> at the event, 1030 Bedford Event Center. I hope everybody comes out. It's something I'm going to ask of every president. I think we're going to have to draw clear uh, red lines for the Chinese Communist Party. Right. You know, what people will say is, well, if you tell them that you can't do a military takeover of Taiwan, then that's just going to force them uh, to action. I, I don't think so. Listen, I'm right. in the school of thought that inaction and ambiguity oftentimes lead to these autocrats uh, and these thugs like Putin making uh, miscalculations. I'm so sorry. I know so, I'm talking your ear off on this. I no, no, it's good. Subject. But I actually want to follow up because this is my question. Is it the case that the U.S. opposes a one China or is it the case that the U.S. opposes a one China by a force? In other words, if that's great, because if the CCP fell and you had a different model, you know, something more, you know, involving the will of the people and then they in Taiwan said, hey, yeah, we could do this together. Cool. You know, that would be completely different from, for example, what we just saw in Hong Kong, where the Chinese used brute force uh, and their ability to manipulate the law to eventually, you know, pull ta- uh, Hong Kong back in. That is an excellent question. You just the, the nuance there is is highly important. Hey, I learned and, from and the and best. He- Melissa Obama. I'm sorry. Who is this again? No. <laughs> <laughs> Well, the nuance in foreign policy matters, right? We often deal in shades of gray. It's not always black and white, right? There's things that we work with countries on. We could have so many things wrong with Russia, for example, and then go into a room and need to work with them on other issues. So I I agree with you there that the subtle nuance of uh, could there be a one China uh, if it's something that the Taiwanese people vote for? If there is a new regime in China, as you suggested, sure, there's scenarios in which um, that would make sense. But right now you have a free and democratic uh, people uh, in Taiwan who are are begging and pleading uh, for the world's help because they do not want to be swallowed up by the communists the way that their Hong Kongers were. Right. We all saw that happen over the last few years. So uh, what about my concern about linking Taiwan and Ukraine together? The argument from the Biden team is we need to get enough votes behind this authorization. And there are, there are some Republicans who are so anti-Ukraine, they may vote no. 
but if we put in Taiwan money, it may sweeten the pot for them and may decide to vote yes. Others say, no, don't mix the two. We don't want to, we've got strong support for confronting China. Don't mess it up. So I think that this is more of a political question than actually a policy question. Um, So it's not, you know, I, I don't share the administration's position on everything. In fact, I think they should have been providing this lethal aid to the Ukrainians as we did in the Trump administration before Putin invaded. And in fact, I think a lot of the way in which they have provided aid has only uh, sought to prolong this war and prolong the killing. Uh, not been good for, for anybody, especially for innocent Ukrainians. You know, the the question I think really, I get why the Biden administration is doing this from a political angle, because they think, hey, we don't have the votes, especially in the House, without linking Taiwan. So I understand the politics of, of why they're doing it. I do think that we have so few things in Washington, D.C. that are bipartisan. I mean, almost nothing, right? You see the politicization of the intelligence community by former uh, Obama uh, intelligence officials who turned themselves into political acts. You've seen the politicization of the DOJ. You've seen it of the Department of Defense um, uh, in in so many ways. So, you know, I, I, I do worry that when you finally have an issue that is an existential threat to the United States, uh, mm-hmm. like the threat of the Chinese Communist Party. And when you actually have pretty you know, bipartisan uh, consensus of, of where we need to be, people, again, have different shades of gray of where they want to go on the policy, but right. a bipartisan consensus, I do worry a little bit about upending that. So Morgan Ategas, I want to ask you about uh, that bipartisan part because the uh, top Republican and Democrat on the China committee, I think that's what they're calling it, uh, yes. Both sent a letter to the head of BlackRock and the head of MSCI, which is a fund moving or investment fund moving uh, company, if you will, a, a compiler of stock market indices saying, hey, you guys are helping move American money into China that the Chinese are then using to develop their military and develop new tech. Your capitalism is endangering our democracy. Two questions. One is when did de- Republicans become anti-capitalism? I thought that was whole deal why are republicans behind this and two uh where are the progressives who are horrified by people you know whatever you know going on a family trip to georgia or florida standing by while you know the blackrock and msci are pouring this money into a country that has uh you know massive labor camps and uh, terrible human rights record well i think that we can be for capitalism and free markets but we don't have to be so for it uh, that we actually end up funding and enabling the regime that wants to kill us right and that that, that may, if we end up in a military conflict god forbid over taiwan um it will be a a damn shame if american investment companies uh were responsible for strengthening the pla the people's liberation army and the, the chinese navy and, and other entities you know it's it's unconscionable to think uh, that the United States uh, investment companies, consulting companies would actually uh, help those. So there's a big difference, Michael, between selling a widget to China or getting, you know, parts of your clothing made there, whatever people make right. you know, business decisions to do. There's a big difference between that um, and actually looking at what the committee is alleging uh, BlackRock has done. They've opened an investigation into it where, you know, the BlackRock is, a, is an investment company, investment fund. Um, and, and what the committee is alleging is some pretty serious stuff. Uh, they're saying that they are essentially funding Chinese companies that have been blacklisted right. by the U.S. government uh, because of their role um, in the PRC military or in facilitating some of those human rights abuses that we talked about. And by the way, these are not minor human rights abuses. We're talking about a genocide, a genocide in Xinjiang that has been was declared by Mike Pompeo, uh, and was declared uh, reaffirmed by the Biden administration. Right. Um, so this is pretty pretty nasty stuff. So you know, BlackRock, I'm sure, will be one of uh, many people that are scrutinized. They're the lor- world's largest asset manager. And, and so what happens, why this matters to the American people, is millions of Americans have their retirement funds and personal savings in BlackRock's, uh, BlackRock's various right. funds and ETFs. So you are unwittingly and unknowingly a part of funding these Chinese companies. So, so I, I mean, I, this is really mind blowing to me. So the U.S. government says, OK, we've, we've got an entities list. You cannot do business with company X because they're right. doing something very bad. And then an American investment fund takes the takes the pensions and investments and retirement money for millions of Americans. 
the same companies that the U.S. government said, no, you're not allowed to do business with them. How in the world does that make any freaking sense, Michael? And uh, according to the Financial Times, it's for at least $429 million U.S. dollars into these That's 20 right. black companies. I want to finish up with some rank punditry because you don't have a talented political person like Morla O'Toole on your podcast without asking her about I'm sorry, Morgan. I'm just going to have to keep messing up your name <laughs> over and over and over again. No, but I, do I don't wanna, have that big of an ego. It doesn't matter. I, also, I, I, it's hard to come up with names that kind of sound like Morgan Ortega, sir. Um, uh, the, how do you get people in grant in the Granite state or in Iowa or South Carolina to focus on foreign policy issues when the political conversation is just dominated by Donald Trump and the legal system where there's indictment after indictment. And then the, all of the, you know, uh, Sturm and Drong around Donald Trump's uh, personal behavior. How can you get people to back up and say, Hey, let's, you know, let's talk, let's, you know, let's focus on these things like America projecting its power abroad. Uh, great question. I think, I do think politics is in the news so much that people are tuning out, right? There's a whole study about the number of people that are just avoiding the news because they're sick of it already. And it's only going to get worse as we mm -hmm. get closer and closer to the primary and then the general. And, and, and so I think that there is a sense, I feel it, I talk to people where they, where they say, you know, politics has turned so divisive and nasty, but we do care about what's going mm -hmm. on in the world. We have, we care about how this is going to affect our children and our grandchildren. And so, ergo, they're interested in talking and, and hearing the conversation that I have uh, with, you know, leader, former and present leaders of our country. So, so I, I do think if you are interested in politics and you're interested in policy, my Polaris events offer a, a safe space where we are not getting right. political, but instead we are really evaluating policy. And, and I think people care about that. Second, I think, and I get on, I used to get on to people all the time when I was State Department <laughs> spokesperson. We talk in this vernacular in Washington, D.C. Uh, that makes no sense. And I always say to people, like, if I read something and my mother or my grandmother wouldn't understand it, then we have mm -hmm. failed at communicating so stop with the weird jargon, stop with the, you know, <laughs> like words that make no sense, you know, sentences right. that, that are, are designed to obfuscate. And let's instead have a conversation. Let's bring it down to real language that everybody understands, because, you know, it matters. Like you're asking really serious, tough, right. hard questions about what should we do about our one China policy and strategic ambiguity? What should we do about Ukraine and Taiwan aid? Should they be linked? And I think that if you treat the average American and everyone who's listening your with your podcast with respect and talk to them in plain language and not in some like industry gobbledygook, they will get it and they will understand. Yeah, that's the word I got from CENTCOM when I was with the DOD talking about the PPP. We're moving over into no, I'm kidding. Uh, <laughs> I I just got to say, I really appreciate your time. It is a delight to have Morgan Ortegas with Polaris National Security on the podcast. And we are looking forward to Saturday's events. All the details are at nhjournal.com on our events page. Thank you so much for joining us. We really appreciate your time. Thank you, sir. And my best to your sister. <laughs> so please welcome to the New Hampshire Journal podcast, one of the people you very may well see on the debate stage for that first Republican presidential debate, Perry Johnson. Perry, welcome to nhjournal.com. Well, thank you for having me. So I just got to say, first things first, my lovely bride is a Michigan grad, go blue. And uh, she thinks everyone who's successful in Michigan should run for president. So she's uh, she's on board. Fantastic. <laughs> so why don't you tell our listeners who are mostly political junkies about the Perry Johnson story and what you think you've got in your background that makes you the right person to be the president of the United States? Okay, we can start from the beginning. I was actually born in Dalton, Illinois. It's a small town uh, just south of Chicago, about 20 miles. My dad was a pilot during World War II, and my mom was a nurse in the Army Wax. Mm -hmm. New Year's Eve party. And that was the biggest break of my life. <laughs> so, here I am today. They love this country. And they always taught me from the beginning of time that in America, anything is possible. It's up to you. And I've carried that theme in my heart forever. Now, my parents didn't have a whole lot of money. 
but I did get through school. I worked in the steel mill during the summer and I got through undergraduate school, but I went to grad school, it was a little tougher. And I was getting eviction notices on pretty much a regular basis. <laughs> but uh, I got through that too. I uh, then uh, got a job in the auto industry with Borg Warner. That was at a time when the auto industry was really struggling. Right. The Japanese had come in with tremendous quality and they were killing us. They were taking market share. And not only did they have better quality, but they had lower prices. Back then in the auto industry, they used to have teams of people at the end of the line inspecting the product. Mm -hmm. If the product wasn't any good, they would either rework it or throw it out. Well, I knew that wasn't going to work. <laughs> um, I was with Ford Warner. They were great with me. In fact, I was handling all of Ford. So Ford Warner supplied a tremendous amount to Ford. I think at that time, Ford was supplying about $500 million a year. Mm -hmm. But my job was to handle the Ford business. And I got intimately involved with the auto industry. So I was involved with engineering, manufacturing, purchasing, uh, and literally all of the divisions. So I got an opportunity to see what was really going on. And I thought I knew how to solve the problem. And despite the fact that I had what my, my mother thought was the greatest job on the planet, and my wife thought was the most perfect thing I could ever do, I decided I was going to leave Borg Warner and start my own company because I had this idea of how to solve the problem. My background is mathematics. I am kind of a math junkie. Okay. The guy that Vegas threw out because <laughs> he played blackjack. No, I, you did. You did not get thrown off the tables in Vegas. Every, every casino. <laughs> no way. That's great. That's hilarious. Yes. In fact, it was really funny when I was running for office, they asked me, uh, is there anything in your background that right. problem? And I said, well, they did kick me out of Vegas. Uh, <laughs> about every casino. Uh, but it was kind of nice, actually, because at the time they were literally paying for everything. So you'd go to Vegas and you had oh. everything was free. You could get the best possible meals, the best yep. Uh, everything uh, you could possibly understand, ever imagine. But nevertheless, I decided that I was going to introduce statistical process control in the beginning of the operation in the auto industry, and we would iron out variation. Now, we used SPC, design of experiments, failure modes, effects analysis. I invented a few techniques for being able to do things so it wouldn't cost a whole lot of money, and you could, you could see what we could do to ameliorate the process. But in about four or five years, we ended up with the best quality in the world. And we didn't even need inspectors. So we were able to do this and we could make this product with substantially less cost. And it was incredible what happened. It was a revolution in the auto industry. And later, they introduced that into all manufacturing in the United States. I said to myself, well, why not a standard for quality? And I wrote a book, ISO 9000, The Quality Standard. Now, it took off like hotcakes and was eventually translated into Spanish, Japanese, heck, even Hungarian. And <laughs> now, Perry Johnson Registrars. Right. Laboratory accreditation to business in 61 countries around the world. I have spent my entire life bringing quality and efficiency to companies and now I want to bring efficiency and quality to the federal government. So that's, I think, the question that the Republican primary voters would ask, which is you had this experience in an industry and you you know, saw a problem, how to do quality control, you know, help people get better stuff for less money. How does that possibly apply to the job of president of the United States? Well, it probably doesn't. If you really think our government is already the most efficient, it could possibly <laughs> money as possible and gets the best possible quality in every area, then I say vote for somebody else. Mm -hmm. I happen to think that our government is the single most inefficient organization 
in the entire country. I've never seen anything quite like it. I want you to think about the way they operate. Just think for a moment. They get, they get a budget. And at the end of the year, everybody is told that they have to spend every penny in that budget. So starting in April, they start pushing to make sure that every penny is gone so they can get more money the next year. Now, what could be more stupid than that? <laughs> So let me put you on the spot because business people often talk about, you know, government should be more like a business, et cetera. And then when you get to the specifics, things get a little fuzzy. Is there an example that you could give a primary voter that would kind of help them understand what the Perry Johnson approach would mean? Sure, I'll tell you exactly what we do in business. What we do is this. Instead of rewarding the people for spending every penny they have, we're going to do just the opposite. We're going to freeze the budget. And we're going to cut two cents out of every dollar of discretionary spending. And if the managers achieve that goal, they get a bonus. We have to incentivize the people in the government. Right. Money, not more money. And you know what? We do that in business and it works. Now, there are entire departments that need to be virtually eliminated. I'm going to give you an example. The Department of Education spends $68 billion a year. They have 4,400 employees. And in these four, with these 4,400 employees, only about 8% of the money goes to grades K through 12. Now, that is idiotic. I say we do just the opposite. We, we right. literally, just about everyone, maybe we keep 10 employees, and we ship the money directly to the parents, and they send their kids to the school of choice. Let us just get rid of all of this ridiculous spending. What about the idea of hiring 87,000 extra IRS agents, which is what the government did? To what? To audit? Well, right. guys, every year anyway. We're <laughs> audit middle class people now? This is nuts. So let me let me back up because the two cents for America, two cents to save America, I should say, is is the Perry Johnson slogan. And when people hear that, it sounds like, yeah, come on, who can't cut you know two percent you know after all the spending that we've had, particularly in the COVID era. But I want to ask you about some specific areas. I'm sure people ask you when you say discretionary spending, does that mean Social Security and Medicare? Well, I'm going to tell you this right now: we are 33 trillion dollars in debt right now. In my book, I'm talking about 32, but it's already been an extra trillion, right? So now we're right around 33 trillion in debt. That represents about $610 per month per family in the United States that we pay in interest on our debt. Now that is over $7,300 a year. Each family is paying just in the interest on the federal debt. Right. When they start talking about how they want to reduce Social Security, which is what's on the plate right now, they're talking about the fact that people are going to have to work much longer now. Maybe they can't pay as much money to the people anymore. And why is that? Because the government has decided to spend so much of everybody's money willy-nilly. They don't even care where it goes. You have bills that are passed in the House if you wanted a ping pong table for your state, you'd have to give concessions to about 100 other people for everything under the sun. And to buy that ping pong table that's $40, you're giving away concessions of about $2,000 to get a bill passed. This is ridiculous. We have to have a way to get people to understand we cannot continue to spend like this. Now, so I... Well, let me ask you about another issue, because here on the podcast, uh, we just had an interview with um, uh, Morgan Ortegas, who was a sp spokesperson for the State Department back in the day. And she's got a national security group that's been hosting events around New Hampshire during the presidential primary. And she says that we need a major investment in defense, so we can't let China continue to outstrip us. And we can't ignore the threat that Russia continues to pose, even though their economy is relatively weak. So does your two cents include two cents less for the Defense Department? Well, I will say this, and I want to make this clear to everybody in the entire country. The only reason that the tax bill was ever passed, because we didn't have taxes in the, understand, we didn't have taxes in the 1900s. 
Uh, it, so if, if, let, let's take this back. So we go back to, uh, eight, I mean, the 1800s. So in 1890, 1895, 19, we didn't have, we weren't paying any taxes. Right. We needed to pass a tax bill because they said they needed it for the national defense. And that is the single most important reason to have a tax, period. But they did an audit of the Pentagon, which is the budget of our national defense. They audited the Pentagon and, and they had they failed the last five audits. Do you know in the last audit, in a budget of 760 billion, they could not account for 220 billion. They do not know where that money went. Now, that is not what I call efficiency. Now, if you have a business, and I'm gonna reduce it to thousands, let's say you're auditing and you audit your accountant and your entire budget that you spent is 770,000. And the accountant says they don't know where $220,000 went. What would you do? It wouldn't be pretty. No, they'd be gone. But that's <laughs> we are with the money. Right. Well, in the fact that it is more important than ever that we have a strong national defense. But there are a couple of things that are critical. We have to pay attention to where we're spending the money, what we're paying for the stuff that they do. Right quality of what we're doing. Right now, with AI entering the picture, technology is probably at the forefront of national defense, or should be. I'm not saying it is. Right. Because we have to make sure that our weapon systems are the best in the world by far. And we have to always be a step ahead. Now, our fear is not Russia right now. Our fear is China. In 1998, China's gross domestic product was $1 trillion and $77 billion compared to our $8 trillion. So we were, what, seven and a half times the size of China in GDP? Right. China is at $20 trillion versus our $25 trillion. We're only 25% bigger, and they are growing at a faster rate. So we have to recognize that money is king. Economy is king. Every single empire in history has been destroyed because of the economy. Rome ruled the world for a thousand years. And what stopped them? They couldn't pay their troops. The sun never set on the British Empire. And what hurt them was they went bankrupt virtually in World War II. And then you have the USSR. They were a huge, mega, mega country. They were the second biggest power until they could not keep up with the arms race and the Berlin Wall came down. So when we put ourselves $33 trillion in debt and have to send $74 billion, million dollars, $74 million a day, so we are no $74 million a day to China in interest, we have to say to ourselves, what's wrong with us? We're borrowing from China in order to exist? This is nuts. And now when the government borrows money, it's more expensive than ever because we have a very high interest rate. It was one thing to borrow when you were borrowing at rates that were three-tenths, right. eight, nine-tenths of one percent. Now we're borrowing at rates that are astronomical by comparison. We have the two-year at what? 4.79, 4 4.8. Borrow money at that kind of interest rate the cost is staggering. If you had to borrow at close to 5%, then our cost would be 1.6 trillion a year in interest. We only collect somewhere between four and what, six, $6 trillion a year in taxes. Right. If you're spending that kind of money just in the interest on your debt, you're in trouble. We, we've got to wrap up, but I do have to ask you about the number one political news story of the day, because it's what political junkies who listen to NH Journal and read our stuff want to know about. And that is, what is Perry Johnson's view of the latest indictment of President Trump and the debate that Republicans need to find a way to uh, find another nominee because fairly or unfairly, Trump can't build the coalition he needs to win a general election? Well, as everybody that paid attention to uh, what's going on, which is almost impossible to do when you've updated different candidates and so much news. But I, on the 21st of March, called 
on Biden to pardon Trump. Using our entire Department of Justice legal system as a weapon is un-American. That's what they do in China. That's what they did in the Soviet Union. That's what they did in Nazi Germany. We're not going to do that in the United States, but we are. And I called on them a long time ago. You reach a very salient point, however, and it's a point that everybody has to recognize that the only way that we are going to win this election is if we win the purple states. It is no secret that Kentucky is going to go Republican. Right. Not going to decide the election. California is going to go Democrat. And California, Oregon, and Washington are not going to decide this. What's the election are anywhere from six to 12, 13 states that are purple states, states like my state, Michigan. And if we do not win those states, we are going to lose the presidency without a doubt. And with that, we will end up losing the House and the Senate because we could lose so many seats just by losing the presidency. So people have to recognize that if we are going to win this election, we have to win over the independents and we have to win over a lot of the people that are in the middle. And if we don't do that, we are done. Now, that absolute theme that people have to recognize. And I think you probably already know that. So the final question is, uh, how close are you to making the, to meeting the metrics required to participate in the first Republican presidential primary at the end of August? Well, as of today, I believe we have 32,000 donors. So we are getting about 1,100 a day. I do have a big and rich concert. In fact, I was just at John Rich's house. Oh. You know, uh, John Rich at Big and Rich. Oh, yeah, yeah. I'm, I am I grew up in uh, South Carolina. I used to live in uh, Nashville. And uh, I absolutely, nothing personal, hate country music. But I absolutely know who Big and Rich are. <laughs> I'm such a nice guy. Uh, we had a really good time together. And uh, we talked for quite some time. But... Uh, we are having a big and rich concert for anyone who donates to me, even if they mm-hmm. don't for a dollar. And it is on August 12th in Iowa. I know that's kind of far from New Hampshire, but, <laughs> but uh, anybody that has donated can go to that concert on August the 12th from five to nine. Uh, and in terms of the debates, we do know the other requirement is the polling. Right. Last week, I was over 1% in three national polls. I think the biggest issue you have is that we have to make sure that the pollsters include me. Right. What amazes me is this. Even in New Hampshire, for example, mm-hmm. in your poll, they did not include me in the poll, even though in those national polls, I was ahead in, in, one, of, in one of them or two of them, I was ahead of five of the candidates that they listed. Mm-hmm nationally now if they don't include you in the poll it's pretty hard right to ever get to one percent in new hampshire but uh i do believe that i have one national poll now and they have not included me in a poll in new hampshire yet but i if they do include me i will i believe i will currently be over one percent so you're close on the polls and you're getting closer on the contributions to make the debate stage. I expect to make it. And well, we, by the way, we have a reality series that runs. So you can actually see what it's like running for president because you, the ups and downs are amazing. Mm-hmm. Uh, it was only a matter of, I think, six weeks ago when I got the poll in Iowa and I was only at like one and a half percent. And I'd spent all this time in Iowa. And I said, right. only at one and a half percent, how is this possible? Uh, I, I'm spending all this time here? Right. I don't have nationally. And then two days later, the uh, village caravan poll came out and it was at 1.4% nationally. So I said, wow. So here I was thinking I had no chance. <laughs> I said, well, we're on Newsmax from six. To, I mean, from 9 to 9.30 every Sunday. Right. 
You can see all of the back episodes if you go to perryjohnson.com slash backstage. And you can see what really happens. And it's actually kind of amazing <laughs> because when you are running for president, it's unlike anything you could ever imagine. I cannot imagine it. And obviously Donald Trump has brought a new layer of showbiz to American politics. So it looks like the Perry Johnson reality shows me part of that. I have one last, last, last question. Back in the day when you were trying to help the car business turn around and when there was a real quality problem, what was the worst car America was making at the time? The one that you were like, never buy this. I could never say that. If I said that. <laughs> well, well, I, I, when I was a kid, my first car was a Ford Pinto because somebody gave it to my dad because they couldn't get it to run. And my dad quickly discovered he couldn't get it to run either. So that was my nominee. Well, the car, I, I still have my first car that I bought. I bought it off the showroom. I have a 1971 Grand Sport convertible. Wow. And by the way, it's a phenomenal car. It's a good car. That car uh, has the four-barrel carburetor. Uh, it can peel. Uh, it's an amazing, amazing vehicle. And when you drive it, and that had such a great sound system in it, too. You take the top down, right. and along, I felt like I was on top of the world. Well, let's hope that continues throughout the campaign. Perry Johnson, thanks so much for joining us here at the New Hampshire Journal Podcast. Thank you very much. Thanks so much for listening to this edition of the New Hampshire Journal Podcast. Please find us on Twitter, New Hamp Journal, on Facebook, NH Journal, and of course at nhjournal.com where you can sign up for our daily newsletter. I'm Michael Graham with Inside Sources. Thanks again for listening.